You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Sophos analyzes malvertising through purchased Google ads. The Move It vulnerability is remediated faster than most. The delivery checkout backdoor is used against Ukrainian targets. SORM is under stress. Ukrainian police roll up another bot farm working in support of Russian influence operations. AJ Nash from Zero Fox provides insights on the White House cybersecurity labeling program. David Moulton from Palo Alto Networks Unit 42 introduces his new segment, Threat Vector. And we bid farewell to Kevin Mitnick. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel briefing for Thursday, July 20th, 2023. Sophos has released a threat profile report for malvertising campaigns that use paid advertisements to infect victims with info stealers and backdoors. The threat actors have been using search engine optimization poisoning to position themselves at the top of search results, thereby making users more ready to click malicious links and download malware. As Sophos explains, as well as conning search engines to try to get their malicious sites near the top of search results, they can also pay for the privilege, buying paid ads from Google so that their sites are guaranteed to appear prominently. This attack, known as malvertising, is often aimed at users looking to download popular software applications. Malvertising isn't a new tactic, but it's growing in popularity, especially when paired with SEO. Through its own research, Sophos has determined that many of the malicious ads were in fact purchased and presented through Google Ads, and larger market trends are also reflected in the criminals' ad buys. Sophos also noticed that newer malvertising campaigns tend to forego previous fake advertisements for sought-after tools like WinRAR and Notepad++, instead targeting users searching for AI-related tools such as ChatGPT and MidJourney. So the cyber gangs have recognized the truth of what Dorothy L. Sayers wrote almost 100 years ago. It pays to advertise. BitSight has published a report looking at organizations' remediation of the various MoveIt vulnerabilities disclosed over the past few months. BitSight says, We are observing what we call rapid remediation for these vulnerabilities. Typical remediation rates for software vulnerabilities are at a mere 5% per month, while these remediation rates are significantly faster. In a typical vulnerability remediation pattern, 
it would take 29 months to reach the same level of remediation we observe happening for MoveIt after just 42 days. In other words, organizations are remediating CVE 2023-34-362 roughly 21 times faster than what's considered typical. The point? Organizations are taking these MoveIt vulnerabilities very seriously, and rightfully so. BitSight believes the rapid patching is due to Progress Software's diligence in publishing timely and informative advisories, as well as the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's timely and explicit alerts. In its annual ransomware report, GuidePoint Security describes the current state of ransomware, what industries it affects most, and casts a spotlight on threat actors. The report explains that ransomware has reached an all-time high since GuidePoint Research and Intelligence Team has begun tracking it, and now seems to primarily affect organizations in the U.S., which make up just over 51% of the victims reported. In comparison, the second most affected country is the U.K., which makes up just 5% of the reported victims. The industries most heavily impacted by ransomware in the second quarter of 2023 are manufacturing, followed by technology and banking and finance. By far the most prolific organization conducting these attacks is Lockbit, with ALFV placing at second and 8Base showing at third. The criminal-to-criminal market has driven down costs and thus barriers to entry that the less skilled and more poorly resourced gangs would otherwise have to hurdle. While there's a lot of reuse of code and while potential victims are often alert to the older threats, what GuidePoint calls smaller or less resourced organizations probably remain vulnerable. So the gang's attentions will in all likelihood be driven down market. Microsoft, working with CertUA, has identified a novel .NET backdoor being deployed against Ukrainian and other Eastern European targets by the Russian threat actor Microsoft tracks as Secret Blizzard, also known as Krypton, UAC-0003, Venomous Bear, or Turla, and generally associated with Russia's FSB security service. The organizations that have attracted the FSB's attention are, for the most part, found in the defense sector. The attack begins with phishing, the fish hook being a document carrying malicious macros. These install a backdoor delivery check, which establishes persistence through a scheduled task that downloads and launches it in memory. The backdoor is also in contact with a command and control server from which it receives a variety of follow-on tasks. Various open-source and specialized tools are used to exfiltrate messages from the Signal desktop messaging application. The operators seem interested in private signal conversations, documents, images, and archive files. The activity isn't confined to Signal. Microsoft also observed the threat actor targeting Microsoft Exchange servers, where it installs server-side components of delivery check using PowerShell desired state configuration. This approach uses a PowerShell script to place a .NET payload into memory. Microsoft says this effectively turns a legitimate server into a malware C2 center. We note in full disclosure that Microsoft is a CyberWire partner. A study by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace concludes that sanctions have rendered Western technology increasingly inaccessible to Russia's government, and that this is placing Moscow's domestic surveillance apparatus, SORM, under stress. 
Sorm rides atop Russia's ISPs and telcos, and those sectors are being hit hard by sanctions levied in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The report concludes, Ultimately, the FSB-led surveillance state envisioned by the Kremlin prior to the Ukraine war and by the KGB in its Cold War heyday is now beset by a potentially crippling web of dependencies. Much about the program remains shrouded in secrecy. However, available insights suggest that SORM's fate is largely anchored to that of the Russian tech sector. The record points out the irony of the situation. About half of Russia's mobile infrastructure had been furnished by Nokia and Ericsson. Both companies have said they won't sell further systems to Russia, and their participation in the sanctions has been supported by Finland's and Sweden's decision to join NATO. Those decisions were given impetus by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Ukrainian police announced this week that they've broken up a criminal operation working from Ukrainian cities that amplified Russian propaganda directed against Ukrainian popular opinion. The group is also said to have engaged in data theft and other cybercriminal activities. In addition to the arrests, police seized SIM cards and other hardware. And we conclude with a somber note. The renowned hacker Kevin Mitnick, known widely as a hacker in the true sense, has passed away at the age of 59, losing his battle with cancer. For those unfamiliar with his career, Mitnick delved into hacking with an art-for-art's-sake spirit, starting as a phone freak during his teenage years. However, his actions sometimes crossed legal boundaries, leading to a prison term. Despite this, his intentions were not malicious, as evidenced by the testimony of his federal prosecutor, who noted that Mitnick didn't seek financial gain from his hacking exploits. Following his release from prison in 2000, he transformed himself into a white hat hacker, using his skills for ethical purposes and contributing positively to the field. Since November 2011, he had been the chief hacking officer and part owner of the reputable security awareness training firm Nobefore. As we bid farewell to Kevin Mitnick, we extend our heartfelt condolences to his colleagues, friends, and most importantly his family during this time of mourning. We will remember him as a kind and amicable individual, and may he find eternal rest. In the complex world of enterprise identity, securing legacy web apps at scale can be daunting. Strata Identity makes it simple. With Strata, you can effortlessly integrate non-standard apps with any identity service, like MFA or SSO, with zero coding and zero hassle. Designed by identity architects for identity architects, Strata works with every vendor, standard, and app architecture. This means your apps can now speak modern protocols and integrate seamlessly with your chosen identity services. From securing on-prem web apps to migrating away from outdated identity providers or consolidating them, Strata helps you keep your complex access policies as you modernize your identity infrastructure and get rid of technical debt. Join leading organizations like 3M, Dallas County, and CIBC in securing your apps with Strata. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity security priorities, and receive a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. 
offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. It is my pleasure to welcome to the CyberWire podcast, David Moulton. He is the Director of Thought Leadership with Palo Alto Network's Unit 42. Uh, David, welcome. Thanks, Dave. Good to be here today. So uh, this kicks off a a series of segments that uh, you and I are going to uh, share together from uh, Unit 42 and your colleagues there. Can we start off with some descriptive stuff here for folks who may not be familiar with Unit 42 at Palo Alto? Uh, what is the, the mission of you and your colleagues there? So Unit 42 is a threat intelligence business. It is a incident response business. It is a team of experts that can help our clients out with proactive assessments. So there's a variety of different things that Unit 42 does. The threat intel feeds into the technology that Palo Alto distributes out to the world the understanding that we gain from incident response work and from working with companies on their strategies for proactive protection are also baked into those technologies. And that meets our mission to make the digital world a safer place. And so what are you hoping to achieve here by spreading the word via this podcast? So Unit 42 has some of the most interesting stories, as you can imagine, from the threat research perch that we have, the relationships that we maintain with law enforcement agencies around the world. We also have a lot of insights and interesting stories to share from the incident response side. I believe it is helpful for us to talk about those learnings, those insights, and to help our listeners use those insights to better protect themselves and to think more deeply about their security strategies You know, there's really a sense of community here that comes into play. I know that's important for you and your colleagues there at Unit 42. You know, it's, I suppose on the one hand, it would be easy from a business point of view to say, you know, we're going to keep everything close to the vest and uh, try to have trade secrets and those sorts of things. But that's not really the philosophy that you all have adopted. It's not, Dave. Unit 42 has been publishing our threat research for years It's one of the top visited spaces within our domain. Our our threat research articles are deep. Uh, They have actionable intel in them and have really established one of the aspects uh, that we're most proud of about the brand is that anyone can come and learn. Anyone can use that research. It's part of why we maintain such strong relationships with clients and with law enforcement is that we don't hang on to everything ourselves. In security, sometimes it is a tendency to know a thing and keep it to yourself, whether it's an insight or you've had a rough day. I think there's some compelling reasons to stop doing that. And that's part of what the show is about. That's part of what Unit 42's DNA is made of. Can we touch on the global aspects of Palo Alto Networks itself and how having that global reach uh, really contributes to the the big picture, the information you all are able to gather and share? Absolutely. When you think about 
any knowledge uh, that a group or a person has, there are going to be gaps and biases. With Unit 42, we've got experts around the world. We've got uh, telemetry that's coming in from uh, deployments of technology at all types of different companies in different environments. And it's that that global perspective and that large amount of observation data that we can start to draw together and then use the expertise, the experience, the analysts, and the relationships that we have to figure out what matters most and to get that out quickly uh, into our technology and into our customers' hands so they can better protect themselves without having a very biased view, one that comes from just a geo or just a certain type of training or just a certain type of security control. I should mention that the, the, the title of the segment is, is Threat Vector. Uh, any particular uh, meaning with choosing that name? Well, yes. So when you think about threat intelligence, that's the core aspect of Unit 42. Uh, the threat intel drives so much of what we do, understanding uh, the, the TTPs, understanding what different threat actors are, are doing or not doing. You know, if they move parts of their infrastructure from one space to another, you've got to interpret what that means. So we wanted to definitely lean into the idea of threat. And then Vector goes right there with it. Where is it coming from? What is its angle? What is its velocity? And, uh, you know, I'm hoping to get something going here with my team calling it Threat Vector Thursdays when we're appearing on the CyberWire Daily. So look out for that hashtag, Threat Vector Thursdays. (laughs) Fair enough. Well, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, what is yet to come. Uh, David Moulton is from Palo Alto Networks Unit 42. David, uh, welcome to the CyberWire, and thanks so much for taking the time for us today. Absolutely delighted to be here. Thanks, Dave. The Biden administration announced a cybersecurity labeling program which aims to convince electronics and appliance manufacturers and retailers to make voluntary commitments to increase cybersecurity on smart devices, earning them a U.S. cyber trust mark on their products. A.J. Nash is vice president and distinguished fellow of intelligence at ZeroFox. I reached out to him for insights on the White House initiative. The White House came out today and announced uh, the new U.S. cyber trust mark program, So this is being uh, spearheaded by the FCC. And I think it's a really interesting concept. It's a great opportunity for public-private collaboration. And the focus really is helping consumers understand the risks associated with a lot of the technologies uh, that we've come to to know and use regularly, a lot of smart technologies, whether it's uh, smart appliances in the kitchen, whether it's your televisions, whether it's watches, fitness trackers, thermostats, you know, all the things that we use every day. Uh, There's a lot of risk associated with these technologies. And the average consumer really doesn't have much of a way of understanding that. You know, it's very technical. It's, you have to be a bit of an expert in a lot of cases to understand these things. So the government uh, is working with some of the largest companies, you know, brands and names we know, you know, Amazon and Google and Best Buy and LG and Logitech and Samsung and some of those to develop uh, a standard uh, that can be applied to all these technologies. And I think there's going to be a, I guess there's going to be a little seal of approval on it, something to that effect <laughs> that says, you know, this meets the standards of the U.S. cyber trust mark, right? And so uh, they're working with NIST on this, 
the National Institute of Standards Technology, for those who aren't familiar with the term, to develop standards for this. So I think it's great. I think uh, it's it's virtually impossible right now for consumers to know, should I buy this technology? Should I not? I mean, I don't know about you, but I have family members often come up to me and talk to me about this. You know, is this safe? Should we get this in the house? Should we not have it in our house? You know, should we have right. digital photo albums, those kind of things uh, come up a lot. And so I think, to be honest, I think this might be overdue. So it's great mm. to see. It's going to take time. I mean, they've got to develop the standards and, and figure it out where it goes. I don't recall seeing a timeline for this other than I think by the end of 2023, NIST was going to have a standard for routers specifically. Right, um, right. So, so it's obviously going to move somewhat quickly. But I think it's great. I think, I think it should make it much easier for the consumer to know, you know, comparatively at least, is this a technology I should or shouldn't buy compared to others? And you, you got to really understand your own risk. And this, this is going to empower people to make better decisions, I think. Probably pressure technologies, too, and companies to build better products out of the box instead of sending things off into the marketplace and then you know, discovering the vulnerabilities later when people have been compromised and had to deal with those vulnerabilities. It strikes me that th- this may be the the cybersecurity equivalent of the Energy Star sticker that we've all grown accustomed to. Yeah, I think so. I, I, somebody else mentioned that earlier to me today as a comparison. I think it's a good comparison, right? Uh, you and I, I mean, I, I can't speak for you, but I'm going to gamble that before that existed, you didn't know how much energy your refrigerator used in a, in a year. I, right, I know I didn't, right? right? Um, you know, I think that's true. I think also, you know, maybe some of the energy standards that have been applied to cars. You know, if you look at a sticker price, it'll tell you how much fuel it's supposed to use over the year or something like that. So, yeah, I, I think so. It's the kind of information that helps us make better decisions on what we purchase, but we would never be able to calculate it ourselves. So as consumers right now, we're sort of in the dark on this, which means you just have to trust whatever company you're working with and in a lot of cases just kind of hope. And a lot of data has been exposed through a lot of these technologies. You know, the fitness trackers come to mind specifically. I know a lot of people have, whether it's a Fitbit or, or Samsung or Google or Apple or whoever's on your wrist right now, you know, all these different trackers and technologies and, that are out there. And I don't think people understand how much of that is unsecure right now and, and how you know, important that is for threat actors who want to track somebody down, whether it's, whether it's a stalker, you know, whether it's a nation state trying to target somebody. There's any number of nefarious reasons to want to know where somebody is and when. And a lot of those technologies aren't well secured. Any thoughts on, on the FCC being the lead agency here? Does that, in your mind, does that track? Yeah, I mean, I think that's where it belongs. You know, this this falls in line with what the FCC does. I mean, this, this falls in line with their mission, right? You know, I think, I'm sure there'll be speculation and debate. There's a couple other places that, that probably come to mind that people will take a look at. I think wherever something happens within a government administration, there's going to be detractors who say, well, it should be here, it should be there. You know, I'll be interested to see who they work with. Working with NIST, I think, is a fantastic thing. I think that's really important. Uh, you know, the Department of Energy is, is going to be involved in a collaborative effort as well with National Labs. And I think, you know, we'll probably see, uh, you know, some of the cybersecurity components involved, whether it's, you know, Cybercom or, or CISA or whoever. I'm sure there'll be other bits and pieces tied to this. But yeah, to me, it makes sense that the FCC is, is going to spearhead this. It seems like something that fits within their remit. And, and how do you feel about this being a voluntary program rather than compulsory? Well, I think that's always a good place to start. It's really hard for the government to come in and mandate things. It's it, Mandate is almost always you know, very unpopular, right? Mm. I think coming in and saying, we have a program, sure, we'll make it voluntary. Listen, a lot of big names have already signed up to do this, a lot of big brands. I think the competitive market will probably end up taking advantage of that. You know, this is going to create a competitive advantage. If you have a product that has a seal of approval on it, 
for the average consumer, assuming this is well understood, which, as you said, like Energy Star, for instance, you're going to have some marketing to go with this so people know what the, the stamp means. I think others will, they won't have to be compelled to do it. They'll have to do it if they want to stay in the market, if they want to stay competitive. So I think it's a, a wise place to start. To Let's see how the competitive market handles it. And then we'll go from there. Now, if it turns out that really unsecure devices are undercutting the market by you know, 50, 60, 70% in pricing, and price is driving consumers to continue to buy risky things, I wouldn't be surprised if the government wants to incentivize a little bit more. But it's really hard to mandate things. And they got off to a really slow start, and especially in a super politicized world we're in now. You know, mm. No matter who was in office, no matter which party was on, in office, no matter which party had Congress, whatever it might be, they're going to argue with each other. And mandates are just a great opportunity for somebody to poke a hole and turn it into a political you know, football that says, aha, see, they're expanding right. government, right? <laughs> right? So I think just avoiding that pitfall is a nice place to go to say, hey, we're trying to do something to make people safer. We're not going to force it on you, but here's the way it's going to work. I think that also avoids politics in a time when, when almost everything is political. So yeah. it, it seemed like it made sense to me. Yeah, I often joke that you know you could hand out uh, gold bricks and there'd be people who complain that they're too heavy. That's, <laughs> that's a good point. It's the same person that's going <laughs> to complain if they win the lottery and have to pay taxes, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. There's always something. But uh, right. I promise you, if you hand me a gold brick, I will not complain about the weight. And if anybody knows right. the winning lottery numbers for this week and hands them to me, I promise I won't complain about the taxes. Deal. <laughs> <laughs> All right. AJ Nash is from Zero Fox. AJ, thank you so much for joining us. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-plus year partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The Cyberwire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by our editorial staff. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. <laughs> 